Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome back to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. Over the past few months, Helen and I have spent quite a bit of time discussing what's going on in Yemen and the Red Sea, Gaza and Israel. In this, we've touched upon Hamas and Hezbollah, the Houthis, and all the great power dynamics now playing out across the Middle East. What we haven't yet covered, though, not in detail at least, is the one state at the centre of all of this, Iran. Last week alone, Iran launched missiles into Iraq, into Syria, and extraordinarily into Pakistan while its proxies launched really quite serious attacks on American military targets across the region, seriously wounding serving U.S. soldiers. But it's not just been Iran on the attack. The Iranian Revolutionary Guard have been hit by pretty devastating attacks by Israel in Syria and Beirut and by ISIS in Iran itself when suicide bombers attacked a memorial service to General Soleimani. Anyway, it's safe to say that a lot is happening right now and it's difficult to get a handle on exactly what's behind it all. So we're delighted that we've got the great Ali Ansari with us, Director of Iranian Studies at St. Andrews, to help us through this sort of messy, messy situation. So the question we're going to ask with Ali this week is, what kind of power is Iran? Does the Iranian regime have a strategy or is it a tactical disruptor? Iran says it will take revenge for the U.S. killing of its most powerful military commander. General Qasim Soleimani died when his convoy was hit by a U.S. drone. Wow, more than 100 people have been killed and scores of others injured in two explosions in southeastern Iran, near the grave of a top Revolutionary Guards commander. Saudi Arabia's military is on high alert after deadly clashes with Yemen's Iran-backed Houthi rebels. This morning, explosions in the city of Erbil, Iraq, after neighboring Iran launched ballistic missiles claiming to target the local headquarters of Israel's intelligence agency. Pakistan has launched strikes inside Iran after Iran attacked targets in Pakistan. So Ali, before we get into what's happening today, the idea of this podcast in general is to dig into the history to kind of get a better grip of the bigger picture. So the obvious place to start, we think, is the Iranian revolution. In the episodes we recorded on Gaza and Israel's struggle with Iran, the absolute centrality of this moment really became quite apparent. One way of looking at the Iranian revolution is how Michel Foucault saw it as this first great insurrection against the Western order. Another, I I guess, is the regime's own interpretation as being neither East nor West, but the Islamic Republic. So to kick off, I suppose I'd like to know from you how you see the revolution, not just ideologically, but geopolitically, how it changed things in the region and beyond. Thank you. Well, I mean, I think fundamentally what obviously the, the revolution does is it takes what is ostensibly a pro-Western ally in a, in a crucial part of uh, the global real estate in the Middle East um, and turns it into a, an opponent of the West. I know, obviously, the, the slogan of the revolution has always been neither East nor West, but actually it's leaned very heavily to the East. And it's something that actually people have picked up, even in Iran. You know, they've sort of said that uh, we were meant to really be non-aligned, but actually what's happened is that we've sided effectively, uh, most explicitly actually with Russia 
Uh, and that causes a lot of friction, I have to say, in Iran, because, you know, the historical relationship with Russia has not been good. So this idea that they would have a, a fairly tight alliance, um, one that is perhaps where, you know, the, the, there is no love, love lost between the two, but nonetheless, it is still pretty tight in terms of, of, of what they're doing together, has been quite striking. So that, I think, in, in geopolitical terms, that's, that's, the fundamental, that, that's the fundamental difference that the Islamic Revolution does. I think Foucault's, um, Foucault's description of it is um, as controversial as his encounter with Iran was, I have to say, in 1978-79. I think he's probably right, I mean, in, in that assessment, that, you know, basically they saw themselves as both part of a Western tradition, but one that was countering the Western tradition. And I'm happy to explore that a little bit further, if you wish. But just as a bit of context, Ali, it's not so obvious, though, is it, right in the beginning of 1979, that this is necessarily where it's heading? In no, not at all. In, in the not sense that there's that period of time in which Carter, Jimmy Carter, the American mm. president, is actually trying to do as much as he can to salvage this relationship. And it's really the taking of the hostages that changes the situation, isn't it? That's right. I mean, in actual fact, the Americans, the Americans are, are, are basically trying to manage a transition. I think the Americans were being a little bit naive, I have to say, in that first year, because it was pretty obvious, really, from a lot of Khomeini's statements, where the direction of travel was going. Uh, but, you know, one of the striking things about the US relationship with Iran is that even after the seizure of the US embassy on November the 4th, 1979, it took another, ooh, what was it, five months for the Americans actually to break diplomatic relations. They didn't actually break diplomatic relations until March. So you have this rather bizarre situation where the Iranians are occupying the American embassy in Tehran and the Iranian embassy in Washington is operating quite normally. I mean, it's it's one of those things that highlights, I suppose, quite as you say, Helen, that the Americans were, you know, really thought they could manage this transition. They thought, actually, that what we were witnessing here was a transition towards some form of democratic republic. I, I think it was it was a generous reading of what was going on, but certainly that's what they felt they might be able to do. And in, in this sense, isn't it, it's quite notable that although that the rhetoric from the regime was pretty hostile to Israel from the start, again, it doesn't lead to an immediate breakdown of all relations between Israel and Iran. I think we talked about this when we talked about Israel and Iran in a separate episode earlier, in the sense that actually Israel is providing some kind of logistic support for Iran through the Iran, Iran well, Iraq this, war. This is, this is also the Iran-Contra affair, of course, yeah. which, is, which is the real shocker. I think rhetorically, there is a very sort of anti-Israeli position, certainly coming from the religious establishment of Khomeini. Practically, of course, what you have is a situation where during the Iran-Iraq war, they were quite happy actually to engage with the Israelis in order to secure much needed spare parts for a lot of their equipment. And I mean, I think on the Iranian part, it was probably quite cynical. On the Western part, it was a little bit, you know, there was a sort of, a, they, they, the revolution in a sense gave the West a tremendous hangover and they sort of thought, well, once we're over this troubled bit, we can almost like renegotiate and, and, and start again, you know, maybe with a slightly different relationship, but we can pick up where we left off. And so, you know, even during the hostage crisis, you have this really peculiar position that the Republican Party in America tends to see the hostage crisis as a democratic problem. You know, it's the Democrats who've screwed it up um, and we'll handle it. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll reach out to, quote, the moderates and we'll sort it out. Of course, after the Iran-Contra affair and the scandal that erupts, which is really a scandal that emerges, you know, because of the Nicaraguan element, not because of the Iranian element, actually. Um, but that's how it's revealed, basically. And of course, that done, then does spread to, you know, what the, on earth they were doing with Iran. Um, you know, then both the Republicans and the Democrats are burnt very badly. And from then on, really, the relationship just sort of declines. In terms of really when there's the next definitive break, it's really under the Clinton administration and dual containment. So up until about 1995, actually, there's a sort of a modus vivendi. Ali, is one of the problems that we're not taking them at their word. We're not taking them seriously for that. We're, we're looking through our own sort of democratic prism mm. and we're thinking only in terms of state interests. But actually... The ideology is so important, and it's it's in this moment, that, you know, in the eighties that Iran they're beginning to fund Hezbollah in, in right. Lebanon. So I think there's a couple of things here. One is a revolution always. I mean, in in terms of it being a highly traumatic event, and you have to remember that the revolution. I think it's fair to say that the Islamic Revolution in Iran is the first 
revolution to be televised in, in, in the sense that mm. also, you know, the hostage crisis was broadcast into American homes on a nightly basis for 444 days. So it's a it's a traumatic experience for all those who sort of experience it. And also there are multiple strands, even at this early stage, of various groups. So there's a tendency in the West to obviously want to try and find those, quote, strands that they think they can work with. And, and everyone, you know, even in Iran, there's a view that this sort of hardline radical element will fade out. Um, there's a tendency to want to read into the Iranian revolution or the Islamic revolution, whichever monarchy you want to choose, the model of the French revolution, interestingly enough. And you get umpteen articles coming out, you know, saying, you know, Thermidor is round the corner and this sort of thing. And, and you know, it's, it's all about trying to sort of model the development of that revolution on a, on a on a previous you know European revolution. Now, interestingly, the Iranians are fascinated by the French and the Russian revolutions. They see their revolution as a successor to those two revolutions. And when I used to talk to them and I said, "Well, what about all oh, the Third World revolutions?" They were very you know snooty about it. Said, no, no, you know we don't mess around with these other Third World. You know we're very much in this sort of tradition of the French and the Russian. But there is this tendency, and I think you're quite right. I mean, the the, the issue is is that we tend to see this sort of revolution development through a sort of our own lens. And, you know, up to a point really through to the 1990s, there was some validity to this argument. When I was going to Iran much more regularly, you know, during the reform movement of Mohammad Khatami, which, you know, has its peak really at the end of the 1990s, but it comes under very, very vicarious attack from hardliners and, and reactionaries. Um, there is a possibility that the, the trajectory of the revolution will go in a quite distinct, almost sort of Republican stroke democratic way. Not one necessarily that we would find enormously, you know, uh, satisfying, but at least one that was one could work with. I think the difficulty was that we, we failed really to to see what the other side were doing. I mean, this is the thing. If you're in Iran and if you if you were looking at what was going on in the politics in a really granular way, you could see what was going on. You could see that the sort of the more reforming democratic element of the revolution was being crushed. And unfortunately, the West, in a sense, was too preoccupied with other concerns, the nuclear crisis, geopolitics, others, that they didn't really pay enough attention to what was going on domestically. And they didn't pay enough attention to the details of that domestic politics. And as you quite rightly say, I think, we completely missed it. I mean, it was there, you know, you could see the ideology, but they didn't, they, they chose not to look. How then should we read Hezbollah in this context, um, Ali? Because if we go back to what's going on there, it's in terms uh, of what's happening in Lebanon and the, the Israel's invasion of Lebanon, or southern Lebanon, I should say, in 1982, that leads to the expulsion of the, the, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Um, but the Iranians involved themselves in essentially helping to create Hezbollah. And, and that obviously is pretty important to understanding the situation in which Israel faces itself today and in the wider um, region. It's the beginning of the story of Iranian-backed groups, which we now see across the region from Iraq to Gaza, um, even in Bahrain, I would say, Iraq, uh, Syria. Um, I mean, this is a moment we should remember when Iran is embroiled in the war with Iraq. Mm. Um, it's in a quite difficult position in that respect. In, in this point, the war hasn't turned as it did for a while in Iran's like favour. So what on earth are the Iranians doing in southern Lebanon um, in 1982? So, and, and I think that that point about the Iran-Iraq war is crucial because, you know, from a Western perspective, of course, the, the, the development of Hezbollah, the development of Iran's sort of like regional proxies, and, and and principally, as you say, Hezbollah at this period after following the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. Um, but, you know, the Iranians had been involved in Lebanon, actually, interestingly, much earlier, even during the Shah's period. You know, he, he had started to move, you know, because he saw the Shias in southern Lebanon as partly, you know, something that he should be looking over. Obviously, it didn't get to the level of what the Islamic Republic was doing. But of course, from a Western perspective, this was seen very much in the context of the Iran-Iraq war. And there was a view still, a very strong sort of, um, legacy view that once the Iran-Iraq war had ended, a new president had come in, Rafsanjani, Khomeini had died. We had obviously the business of the Rushdi affair, by the way, which I think is extremely important. But at the time, there was generally this view that Iran had come out of the war in a much better position than Iraq, was seemingly open for business, actually. So, and Rafsanjani made it very clear that was the idea that they wanted to reconstruct. So there was a tendency, again, to want to see the positive sides of that, that what basically was going to happen was that Rafsanjani was going to curtail the radicals, keep them in their box, 
move forward on a sort of an economic reconstruction of the country, which from which polit- political change would follow. And this would all lead to happy ever after, basically, everyone. <clears throat> what happens is, of course, is that the radicals do not go down very quietly and Hezbollah and the other, all these sort of challenges that occur. You know, at the time, people sort of felt, well, you know, the rhetoric against Israel, it's rhetoric. I mean, this is one of my arguments now, that rhetoric comes back to bite you. Basically, you can't just, and I've, I've said this for many, many years, you can't simply say death to America every week. And, you know, as Iranians would say at the time, oh, well, it, it's just, you know, part of a, a, a weekend a weekend out, you know, you go on a march and you chant. Well, yes and no. I mean, ultimately, these things have consequences. And whereas in the 1990s, people would say, and it would be very, very prominent, that this is all, you know, it's rhetoric, it's dying out, it's whatever. Actually, it wasn't. It's not just rhetoric and it's not dying out. It was actually being reinforced. And th- this is the, the thing. So you see these multiple strands. People were betting on a particular horse winning. So if the radicals are starting to win there, what is their purpose? Like, What is their goal? Is it to to wipe out Israel? Is it sort of leadership of the Islamic world or, or, the, or to become the, the regional power? Like, What is the goal? Well, the, the radicals basically try and marry up with a sort of very radical nationalist agenda. So it, it is about great power status. They borrow on this notion of great power status, which, I mean, most Iranians, by the way, by, I mean, the nationalist constituents in Iran, which is very large and you know, would be secular as well as religious, all can buy into this. But let me give you two examples about how, how things were, I, I think, deliberately almost misinterpreted. So there was a whole generation of people who said, when Khomeini said, we have to kill this author for writing this dreadful book and insulting the prophet, a whole group of people would say, he didn't really mean it, we can sort, sort it out. And actually, in some part, the government of Khartoum, did actually say it, ultimately, that we won't pursue it. The fact is the radicals in the regime were deadly serious about it and they put $15 million up to anyone who would do it. I mean, and I used to say to people, I said, well, if you're not serious about it, why are you putting a bounty on the guy's head? I mean, you know, this is this seems very bizarre. So th- there was that sort of dichotomy there. Then with Israel, again, you got this sort of notion that people would say, well, what do they mean? It, it's all part of a sort of their notion of reminding themselves that they're Muslim, for instance. But actually on the radical right, the reactionary sort of, um, hardline Islamist group, they were deadly serious about it. I mean, for them, the revolution was not about setting up a republic at all. I mean, the Islamic Republic, for many of these people, was simply a transitional phase. It was a transitional phase towards an Islamic government. And the Islamic government was highly autocratic, I would say despotic, actually, which is what we're seeing today, uh, a religious despotism uh, surround, you know, around the concept of the supreme leader with a sort of a rather messianic vision of where this was all going to go. I mean, this was a, 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 about a sort of a dominance which they sort of sold to some of the sort of nationalist constituency as Iran becoming a great power. But actually, if you look at the ideology, and it's there, by the way, I mean, you see it developing really as a reaction to reform, the reform movement in the end of the 1990s. They start to articulate a very, very detailed vision of themselves of what they want. And it's pretty uncompromising, actually. But the, the reality of it is, is that nobody in the West was looking at this because it's pretty unsavory. It's a bit like saying... You know, Hitler had written Mein Kampf and he says in there what he's going to do. But nobody really wanted to. They said, well, you know, is is he serious? Actually, as we find with a lot of these people, they write these manifestos and they are serious. And then this is exactly what's going on. I mean, you've seen over the last 20 years, any remains of sort of, quote, reform, as we put it. Is dead. I mean, it's just died. Just before we get on to the the tease and then the, the the nuclear question and how in a way that leads to Iran's like um, isolation. Can I just like push you like one more bit on this sure. question about the relationship between Iran as a geopolitical player with interests and the revolutionary ideology that you've just been describing? And I would say millenarian ultimately i mean there's a yeah, kind of yeah uh, i think you're com- right coming of yeah. the apocalypse about it in which the death of the jews is in some sense the climax of the the apocalypse is is there though a relationship between iran's much longer history and i don't just mean actually now its history uh in the the post-arab conquest era but prior to that of iran being if you like a grand civilizational player yeah and then you think about that in terms, you know, from the period from the 16th century to the 18th century of it being the bearer of the Shiite faith, which obviously didn't actually, as I understand it, um, you know, it, 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 that wasn't Iran's initial history in the, no, no, the Islamic era. So it's part of the reason why Iran can be a great power um, narrative plays and, and in a way disguises the millenarian projects, as I would describe it, 
because this stuff about Iran as a civilizational power and in some sense a civilizational power with a universal faith. And you could even perhaps put that pre the Arab conquest, that this stuff does resonate in Iran because of its long history. I mean, this is what I mean by the nationalist constituency. I mean, basically, there's a nationalist constituency that basically harks back to a pre-Islamic heritage. And the Islamic Republic has tried to appropriate some of that. So under the Shah, the Shah tried to appropriate certain Islamic motifs to his interests. I mean, he was a strongly sort of secular nationalist in many ways, although quite religious. Um, the Islamic Republic has done the reverse. I mean, basically, it's, it's a strongly sort of Islamist outfit, but it's trying to appropriate certain national points. And this is also about the geopolitics of what Iran's position is as a sort of a great power in the region. I mean, in this sense, it, it mirrors in some ways what China feels, you know, the sort of decline of a great power in the 19th century. It now wants to get itself, you know, restored to this position. Now, the problem with this argument is it works well up to a point, you know, so when after the, and I'm sorry to move ahead slightly, but after the invasion of Iraq and Afghanistan and the elimination of the Taliban and Saddam Hussein, you know, Iran had a field day. I mean, it basically sort of said, great, you know, these are sort of areas that we were always very active in. We'll get back in there and we'll, we'll establish ourselves as the sort of dominant force. And I could explain that. I mean, I could explain that in historical context because it's very clear that Mesopotamia was always part of Iran's near abroad, if you call it that way. It was, you know, part of that sort of Persian Gulf basin and this sort of thing. Where it starts to lose some of that is when they start going into the Mediterranean Basin, because actually, historically speaking, Iran, unless you're going back to the Archimedes, you know, period in the 5th century BC, is not pottering around on the Mediterranean Basin. It's not its natural area. This is actually driven by a different ideology, in a sense, and that's the religious and the millenarian, as you sort of point out, where it's looking at Shia sites, but it's also looking, as you say, for this sort of, quote, final conflict with Israel and the West and so on and so forth. And, you know, that comes out. And I've often said, you know, to people, there is nothing in Iran's national security sort of agenda or geopolitical interest to dictate that it needs to move sort of basically west of the Euphrates. I mean, you know, there are many people who'd say they should keep bloody well east of the Tigris. But, you know, fine. It's happened. What's happened since 2003 has happened. There is a sort of an element there. And you can sort of understand that in a historical frame of reference. It's it's very clear. But the rest of it is, as you say, I think quite right. Now. I mean, it, it, then then uh, um, uh, another tendency. And despite the fact that I'll get colleagues saying to me, no, this is about forward defence or something. No, it's not. <laughs> it's nothing to do with forward defence. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's one of those excuses, which I'm sorry to say, I think, you know, you know, there, there are, I think, people who are, uh, shall we say, a little bit too willing to believe the myth. Well, I guess one person who who absolutely doesn't believe that sort of myth and is, is who sees uh, Iran just purely ideologically, I guess, is is Netanyahu, and I, and I think that brings us to this this period in time which is quite interesting. I think this two thousand and five up to sort of two thousand and ten when the tension between Israel and Iran Iran seems to really ratchet up to the point where Obama, the Obama administration, seemed to think that Netanyahu is on the brink of an attack directly on Iran. I mean, and this is the the figure of Ahmadinejad. And I guess this, if, if, if when we're trying to look at Iran and think, is it a power looking after its interests or is it an ideological threat that is gripped by this this millenarianism, as, as Helen says, this is a period where it, it certainly seems to swing to the latter. It does. Not to be too generous to Netanyahu either. I mean, I think Netanyahu was a deep spoiler in the earlier period. I mean, he could have engaged a little bit more with those sort of more moderate wings or, or helped in promoting those more moderate elements within the Iranian uh, establishment in the late 1990s, early 2000s. But certainly what you have is almost like a, a self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways, where um, in, 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 in sort of blocking any chance of that element coming through. And again, I would stress that this is really an internal dynamic. I wouldn't want to blame other powers for it. But nonetheless, you know, for him, for Netanyahu in some ways, Ahmadinejad was a godsend because it sort of proved his point. And Ahmadinejad was a curious... I mean, actually, I would say he's millenarian to the core because he's both religious nationalist. You know, he mixes and matches with wanton, you know, abandon. And, I mean, makes no sense whatsoever, actually, what he does. Cyrus the Great, in his vision, is a great religious leader, you know, almost like a good Muslim. I mean, it, it's 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 really quite bizarre. And um, but he does puff this stuff out. He's very much into the hidden imam. He very much, you know, pumps out some 
let's be blunt, anti-Semitic rhetoric. He claims it's not anti-Semitic, but it, it, it is. I mean, he, he doesn't, you know, he says, oh, no, Iranian, we, we love Iranian Jews. Iranian Jews are different. I can tell you from contacts that I've had among, you know, the Iranian Jewish community that they found the situation under Ahmadinejad deeply unpleasant and, and very awkward. I mean, it, it just wasn't what it had been previously. And I think Ahmadinejad, of course, is the one that effectively articulates the vision of the Supreme Leader at the time, more bombastically and less subtly than he might have. But for the rest of us, you know, here is when what you see is what you get. Here is when it's no longer a matter of disguising. And I said very strongly at the time, you know, this guy is a complete fiasco in, in terms of, you know, what he, he, he doesn't understand world politics. He's going around mouthing off. He likes the controversy. Our problem actually in the West is there were many people in the West who loved the fact that he spouted off this nonsense because it's good copy in some ways without really seriously thinking about what he was saying. And he was saying some pretty extraordinary things about the Holocaust, about wiping Israel off the map. I got into a massive debate with journalists and others saying, you know, whether he was using the passive voice or the active voice or this, that, the other. I mean, many people didn't actually read the Persian, you know, to see what was going on. I mean, if you read the Persian, you could see what he was saying. He's basically looking forward to a time when Israel no longer exists. And he, he wasn't talking about it in terms of South African apartheid. He just didn't want it to exist. I mean, and OK, they might colour it and paint it in a, in a and try and sort of explain it in a slightly more subtle way. But actually, if you moved away from Ahmadinejad and look at the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard, my, my late colleague, Michael Axworthy, and I used to discuss this. <laughs> we were talking about the, um, you know, when he was talking about uh, will be wiped from the page of history, this sort of passage. And Michael said quite rightly, he said, the trouble is, it's it's a bit difficult to read the nuance when the IRGC put missiles out on parades with great big banners on them saying Israel will be destroyed. I mean, <laughs> where's the subtlety? You know, I mean, it, it's, it's, and, but people would not look at this. I mean, they would say, no, no, Ahmadinejad. I mean, I remember some people saying to me that this is a man who got a PhD, and I say this in a very loose term, uh, reportedly a PhD in traffic management. But anyway, who people were saying, oh, yes, he's, he's, he's deeply thinking about you know, social science, you know, his use of myth is, is in a social scientific way. I said, it isn't. I mean, you know, don't, don't, don't give him credit where he doesn't deserve it. You know, I mean, the, the, he's not using it. He's not that subtle. You know, um, he was pushing a certain agenda. I mean, I absolutely agree with you. And But isn't it also, though, striking if you look at that period, and I would say run it up to the point in which Obama was willing to put the sanctions on Iran that led to the nuclear deal. So not We'll leave the nuclear deal to the 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 second or the face the nuclear deal to the second half. But if you'd stop the clock around that point, you'd say that actually the trajectory of Iran had been to really quite significant isolation. It's not like China and Russia are running to defend Iran at this point in the proceedings. And the Obama administration, whatever happened to the Obama administration's Iran policy later, is at this point they were willing to deploy sanctions on Iran's oil exports, which had never been the case under previous American regimes. Now, obviously, part of the context of that is the American shale oil boom, and the Obama administration thinks that there's space for the Americans to do this in the way in which they haven't done before. But I would say we're getting to the point where Iran's looking at quite a lot of isolation in the early 2010s. Just talk us through a little bit about how you see how Iran was in, in that period from the 2005 election onwards until the sanctions? So, <clears throat> I mean, basically, the problem here is that there's a big rift between the Americans and the Europeans about how to deal with Iran. The Europeans take the lead, obviously, initially, and they, they, they go to Iran during the, the, the dying days of the reform movement under Khatami, and they try to get a, a deal. I think the Europeans, I'm sorry to say that, but I have written about this, drop the ball very badly, because what they do is they concentrate so heavily on a nuclear security that they forget actually to look at the domestic political setup. And the domestic political setup by 2004-2005 is clearly moving in an Ahmadinejad direction. There's a, there's a brilliant quote by some European diplomat, which I use, which says that when it comes to security matters, it's much better dealing with conservatives. You know, we can't deal with these reformists. They're all a bit woolly. Big mistake, because what they do is basically, quote, the political lay of the land moves towards the conservatives, but not the sort of conservatives that the Europeans are thinking about. They think in terms of their own conservative, you know, sort of like... David Cameron. Um, <laughs> Rafsanjani. Yeah, part of, I mean, not even David, you know, sort of a Rafsanjani period, which was sort of pragmatic conservatives. What was happening in 2005 is this is not the case. And people like me and others warned 
incessantly, but you know, to no avail. Okay. So what happens is, is that you get a transition into the sort of Ahmadinejad setup. Not that many of us saw Ahmadinejad coming in, I have to say that that was a bit of a shock to all of us. But nonetheless, the the Americans are not interested in participating. They simply won't participate. So the Europeans are taking the lead. The, the Americans only come in very late in the day. Uh, really, if I'm not mistaken, it's in the latter days of the Bush administration, they start to sort of say, OK, we'll, we'll, we'll start engaging in these talks. Um, and what the Bush administration does is they start to have a policy towards Iran rather than just saying we're going to ignore them. They, they actually have a policy towards it. And it's here that you start to get sanctions ratcheting up. And it's Obama's first administration where he inherits that. So if you remember, Obama gives his sort of inaugural address where he says, you know, if you unclench your fist and so on and so forth, you know, it was meant to be a very strong signal to Iran. What happened was, much to the disappointment of many Obamaites, of course, is that Obama, having inherited the policy from Bush, then decided that we can't let go of this. Let's get on with the sanctions and start squeezing. So Obama's first administration is basically him squeezing the sanctions even tighter and tighter to get the Iranians essentially to a position where a negotiation becomes meaningful. And it's really 2011, 2012 when the situation becomes really quite serious. And actually to go back, Helen, to your point, you know, when people say oh, the sanctions had no effect or it had nothing to do with sanctions, again, this is just, you know, in my view, waffle, okay? But nonetheless, so 2011 is crucial because it's the banking sanctions, the financial sanctions come in very severely. 2012 is when the EU also, because the Iranians always had this view that the Americans can sanction all they want, but we'll deal with the EU. Um, and then in 2012, the EU, and I remember this very vividly, actually. The EU classically, of course, announces, they say six months time, the oil embargo will come in. And the Iranians didn't take it seriously. I mean, they just didn't take it. They said, no, no, the EU can never do anything. They, 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 they'll they never act. Of course, they did. And it was one of the few times when the EU actually acted pretty unanimously. And it was devastating for the Iranians. Now, almost within six months of that, secret talks were authorised by Khamenei with the Americans in Oman. I mean, think about how quick that movement is. Um and of course, nobody knew about these uh, negotiations, but he said, and not only, interestingly, did he authorise those negotiations, he did so over the head of his president. So Ahmadinejad had no idea that these negotiations were taking place. And, you know, and, and it's also a very interesting argument, as I have said to people, about what the role of the presidency is in Iran. So you still get people saying the presidency is very important. I think that's the moment, actually, when the presidency becomes quite irrelevant. Because if you can authorise secret talks with your arch enemy without your own president knowing what's going on, I mean, obviously, the presidency doesn't really matter that much. I mean, this is this is pretty serious. So when 2013, when Rouhani is, quote, elected um, and comes in and there's this sort of euphoria that, oh, we're back to the Khatami period, which we weren't, by the way, but it, it was good to fool people, I think. And anyway, obviously, Rouhani is a much more affable person and he brings in Zarif, who speaks very loquaciously in American English and so on and so forth. So everyone buys into this. What's fascinating is that Rouhani is stunned when he's told that there's been negotiations going on in Oman. I mean, he has no idea. And he's, you know, so this idea in the orthodox narrative that the negotiations started in 2013 when Rouhani came in and they're yeah, complete nonsense. That The fact that they get, get to the joint plan of action so quickly is because there's been a year of negotiations going on privately. Just yeah. listening to you there is extraordinary because it makes you think that actually John Bolton and Donald Trump are picking up on an American policy that has has worked quite successfully, and they're just saying keep going with it, keep going. They're, they're not the break. Yeah, yeah. The, it's it's a it's a question of timing about when you then sort of release Iran from its grip. That was a, a fantastic run through of the history. Let's turn to the present situation after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there, Ewan here, the producer of These Times. Let me tell you about some of the other work we've recently published at Unheard. On Friday, Freddie Sayers spoke to Britain's strictest head teacher, Catherine Burble Singh about her high court case to ban prayer in school. People don't think discipline is bad, but when it's done in love, the children understand it and they appreciate it. Florence Reed interviewed Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright and filmmaker David Mamet about the death of Hollywood and why Trump will win in 2024. The conservatives are done with the left. We aren't looking for anything from the left because there's nothing there. You can find both of these at www.unheard.com. So welcome back, everybody. So we finished the first half there with Iran isolated, being squeezed by Europe and the United States, and that being really quite successful in driving them to the negotiating table for this nuclear deal that that eventually will fall apart. I mean, at this point in time, the general consensus seemed to be that although Iran was looking to be a kind of wannabe great power. It couldn't be because of its isolation. And particularly, it didn't have a great power ally or a a particularly strong one. It didn't have a great relationship, a close relationship, a close enough relationship with Russia or China. Now, that seems to be the thing that is starting to change in that it seems Mm. to be part of this emerging axis, Russia, Iran, China, which if we go all the way back to that Foucault quote, is something that is challenging the West, and it takes us all the way back to the 1979. Is that is, is that how you, is that how you see it, Ali? Well, I mean, the the so that dynamic develops in part also because of the changing dynamic in the relationship between China and the West, but also Russia and Putin's Russia and the West. So, I mean, initially, and and I should say this for clarification. I mean, one of the things the Iranians say is the reason they came back to the table is because the Iranians accepted that they would be allowed to have some uranium enrichment on Iranian soil. Now. The question about that is it's very debatable at what sort of level of uranium enrichment the Americans were initially going to allow. I think ultimately what they allowed was far more than they were telling their allies they would allow. Let me put it that way. But nonetheless, you know, there's an element of give and take. But I, my emphasis really, and I would say, is the sanctions were important. And one of the reasons also I'd say the sanctions were very important is because the Russians at the time had come up with a deal for the Iranians. You know, they said, you know, because one of the deals is obviously that all the enriched uranium and all the excess enriched uranium would be shipped off to Russia and all this sort of thing. I mean, Russia was meant to be the key partner in helping this happen. And under Ahmadinejad was such an eclectic and daft leader, I have to say, and and eccentric, I should say, that he ignored the Russians at one stage and he rebuffed the Russians and decided to do a deal, I think it was with Brazil and Turkey. And the Russians were so annoyed about this that he'd basically basically turned them down to do exactly the same deal with some other powers. But, you know, six months later, when actually Iran's enrichment levels had gone up, that the Russians actually bought in. So, you know, the UN sanctions that came in obviously had to come in with Chinese and, and, and Russian support. And what's interesting about that, of course, is it led, you know, the Europeans and the Americans really to this belief that the Russians were very much anti iran Doing very the Chinese, I mean, have always been very pragmatic. I have to say, that. I mean, they're they're not actually as involved in the whole thing as as they may. They like to be there, but they're not as involved. But the Russians, you know, this view that the Russians had a very tense relationship with Iran and certainly didn't want Iran to become a nuclear power. Now, somewhere along the line, post Ahmadinejad, and I think people who know Russia will be able to tell you a bit more. Something changes in that in that relationship, and I think it's one is Ahmadinejad is out the scene and two the relationship with Russia is really dominated by the IRGC so the IRGC build that relationship with Russia that's the Iranian Revolutionary Guard yes and they basically develop that on a sort of a military industrial complex and it becomes uh, a much more coherent and and sort of reliable relationship now one of the areas where they cooperate very effectively is Syria of course I mean this this is this is what's going on and that begins to cement things but I I found recently I have to say that there were certain changes in domestic Russian politics which I found quite striking which you know I've always been of the view that the Russians would at the end of the day keep a firm hand on the tiller as far as Iran is concerned actually I've discovered I sort of discovered talking to colleagues of mine who work on Russia a bit more you know that in the last 10 years or so Putin's worldview has actually begun to merge very heavily with 
Iran's worldview. And I, I don't know, you know, one of the recent speeches that Putin and, in fact, Medvedev and others, you know, after the invasion of Ukraine, they came out. I did say to someone, I said it could have been written in Tehran. I mean, it was some of these speeches are really weird. I mean, uh, quite millenarian. So I think that relationship with Russia post 2010, shall we say, to make it nice and neat, but probably, you know, there's always grey areas as these things move forward. Um, certainly from uh, 2011, I mean, the Arab Spring is 2011. I, you know, from those periods on, it starts to consolidate into something quite different. The Iranians had always relied on the Chinese and Russians for veto power in the UN Security Council. This had failed quite dramatically in 2010, 2011, obviously. But ironically, post that, the relationship becomes, certainly with Russia, becomes quite tight to the extent that Zarif, the foreign minister of Rouhani, in his memoirs, which were very kindly leaked online, um, basically says that the Russians were the key spoiler in attempting to get a nuclear agreement because they didn't want Iran to have a good relationship with the West. Just on this, can we just unpack the story about Syria? Because I think that this is a pretty important part. And we should just say something maybe a little bit about the fact that for historical reasons, Russia and Iran have pretty complicated relationship, not least because Russia is part, if you like, of that story of Iran's humiliation as they see it in the 19th um, century. And, and Iran doesn't open really up any territorial questions with Russia on the dissolution of the Soviet um, Union. But it seems to me that there is some actually, leaving aside whatever's going on in domestic politics in Russia, some kind of common interest in Syria. And that this isn't just a question of having what we would now think of as the authoritarian regimes or the autocrats aligning with each other, that they both regard the emergence of ISIS in particular in Syria, but also to some extent in, in Iraq, is deeply problematic for them. And isn't it the case then that actually we should think of about the fact that once Iran has been brought to the nuclear deal, obviously in part, as you said, under Russia's tutelage, so to speak, is that the cooperation in Syria, they really ups the ante because that is the point. I think it's September of 2015 when the Russians militarily involved themselves in Syria themselves. So actually you have a pretty significant war really that Iran is fighting in Syria against ISIS in that second part of the 2010s from that point. I would say that the war against ISIS is a, is, is a sort of a, an outcrop of this, if I can put it. I mean, it, it, it's a subsequent development. I think I think the basis of that, the, the, there's a strange coincidence of interest that turns up. So the Iranians have always been very sympathetic to the Syrians because the Syrians are the only Arab power to have basically supported the Islamic Revolution. I mean, throughout the Iran-Iraq war, it was only the Syrians that supported Iran versus Iraq. Because classically, as one might expect, the two Baathist parties in the Middle East didn't like each other. So because of that, the Iranians always felt they had a sort of a debt to the Syrians. It was the Syrians that always in the Arab League would vote, actually, interestingly enough for Iran. Syria also offers obviously that land corridor in as well to Lebanon and obviously to Hezbollah and that. So there there are wider strategic interests with Syria. And they always felt that they owed that debt with Syria. The Russians, I think the relationship there is slightly diff uh, different. And that is really that there, there is a point, obviously, the Russians that, I mean, certainly during the Yeltsin years, and then obviously Putin takes over, where they're trying to get to a modus vivendi with the West. And for various reasons, as we've discovered, that doesn't work. Putin goes in a, a, a quite a different direction. Putin, I think, then shares with Iran a particular loathing of what he considers to be Western perfidy. OK, so he says the West betrayed us, the West betrayed you. or when it, I mean, obviously debatable, <laughs> but this is the view they have. And he also thinks that actually in the post sort of Iraq phase, when America and the West is getting Middle East fatigue, let's be honest. I mean, the Obama administration, I have to say, is is disastrous in some ways. I mean, obviously, they're, build, they're, they're inheriting a situation of the Bush administration. But the Obama administration's policy towards the Middle East, I think, was very ill thought out. I mean, in, in terms of a strategic perspective, I quite understand the fatigue. Of course, there was fatigue. Of course, people were getting, you know, politics, domestic politics, when they allow it. But this idea that they would cede the ground almost without contesting it. Well, the Russians moved in. I mean, you know, the, the Russians moved. So just contrast, by the way, I mean, in 2011, Arab Spring, the fate of Mubarak in Egypt and the fate of Assad in, in Syria. So Mubarak sort of has an uprising and Hillary Clinton or whatever, they say, oh, it's time to go. I mean... Now, for the Arab states in the region, going crikey, the Americans are really reliable allies, aren't they? We're all basically 
autocracies of some sort, but the Americans, being idealistic and whatever, have said to Mubarak, time to go. And then not only that, but the Muslim Brotherhood come in. You know, I mean, it, it just becomes quite incomprehensible to many of the Arabs, particularly the conservative monarchies in, in the Gulf. Assad, on the other hand, absolute brutality. And Putin and the Iranians basically say, we'll stick with you thick or thin. I mean, we'll do that. Now, what does that send? What, does, what message does that send to the Arab, Arab states who are feeling very vulnerable? Who's your reliable ally? Putin. And it's a gift. And then add in the 2013 red line that Obama had that she suddenly, you know, then turned his back on. I mean, the whole thing, I have to say, on a sort of a foreign policy is, is a fiasco. And of course, it opens the door and Putin comes in, the Wagner group, whatever, sends them all in. And he, he, he fights and sticks by his ally in this sort of sense. And the message that sends to other Arab states, of course, is that who's your reliable ally? Russia. And of course, the Iranians also see that. They say, ah, when it hits the fan, who can we rely on? Now, of course, that dynamic changes after the war in Ukraine, by the way, because that can be. But up in those early periods, up until COVID, basically, you have a, a situation where Russia has been able to project power because it's willing, because actually it's willing to project power. I mean, so that's alliance cements because of that. And Harmony in particular values it. Now, Putin also charms Khamenei, I mean, in a way that Putin is one of the few foreign leaders that actually gets to see Khamenei. He actually goes to visit him. He brings him, you know, gifts that Khamenei would like. He makes, I mean, one of my most, which Putin never denied, by the way, is he says, you know, I have seen the face of Jesus Christ in Khamenei. I mean, what? I mean, what's going on here? And of course, the Iranian, oh, you know, he sees him as a holy man. I only actually then realised afterwards with all this Archbishop Kirill stuff and whatever and what, you know, the millenarian stuff that's actually pervading a lot of Russian thinking these days, that there was actually a very strong, how should we say, bilateral <laughs> exchange of views in this period, clearly. And they both, I think, shared a loathing of the West. I mean, that this is what consolidated their, view, their alliance. Just one quick thing, though, but it's also the case, isn't it, that if you bring in an energy perspective to this, there yeah. actually remain rivals through this oh, yeah. period. No, no. And particularly where gas is concerned, because these yeah. are the two countries that have between them the largest gas reserves in the world. And Russia has spent a long time, certainly through the, I'd say, the 90s, but particularly like through the 2000s, basically trying to keep Iran out of the, the European gas market, which it wanted to itself. But also in sales and also in sales to China. I mean, you have this curious i don't know how you would describe it but it is almost like a schizophrenic relationship so i mean i talk to russians who would say to me the only people who lie more than us are the iranians i mean if that's the basis of your alliance you know i mean that, that that's great but at the same time i have to say that the iranians granted the russians the rights to fly out of hamadan air force base which is, which is astonishing i mean to, to bomb in syria um that the russians had helped in all sorts of other. so the i mean the way i look at it is this and to try and explain it, because I quite agree with you, Helen, it's a slightly bizarre relationship. I think the Russian alliance is with the Islamic Revolution. It's not with Iran, if I can put it that way, right? So it's basically with Khamenei and the Revolutionary Guard, and they have particular interests, and their interests are not tied, actually, to the wider interests of the Iranian state, which is basically that when Iran gets sanctioned or when the Russians get sanctioned or whatever, so once the Russians got sanctioned in terms of gas, the European gas, they switched their energy over to the Chinese. And, of course, that cut out the Iranians again. So there is this, there is a sort of a definitely a rivalry there and you know i this is why to my point by the way i think the iranian decision to double down in support of the russians after the ukraine invasion is probably the biggest strategic miscalculation the iranian state irrespective of what the regime is has made in the last 100 150 years is this come back to it was once described to me the difference between realism as a foreign policy way of understanding the world and realpolitik is that re realism believes that states only act in their interest. Whereas realpolitik looks at the ideas that people in states believe in and say, we yeah. have to take account of the zeitgeist. Yeah. And what you we know. need is more realpolitik and not as much realism. I mean, that, that's my view. Yeah. And the trouble is realpolitik is often seen as synonymous with realism. And you're quite right, it isn't. Yeah. And, and I, I've come around to that view as well, that the realpolitik, that, that's the way that we have to understand yeah. The, the the Middle East or all, or all actions. I mean, look at nationalism as a driver of how and, states behave. And I've behave. said that, you know, pe people have said in the 1990s, people said ideology in Iran will be overcome by nationalist ideology. And I used to say to them, I said, you know, be careful what you wish for, by the way, because nationalist ideology is not necessarily going to be any less radical than religious. It just have different 
motives, but uh, it will achieve what it thinks to be the same end. But it, but is is that what's going on here? Then ultimately, the 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 thing that's binding um, Iran and Russia in the Middle East, and and what explains Iran's behaviour in Yemen, in Lebanon, and why China sees its interests uh, fulfilled or um, uh, with this alliance with Iran and Russia is this is going back to this idea that we can push the West out of the Middle East. This is about this is East versus West, and this is an alliance that gets America out, gets you know wipe Israel off the map, push Britain out of the of the Red Sea. All of, that's the way to understand this wider conflict and everything we're seeing. That all of these Iranian proxies. That's the goal. I think. Now, again, there's slight contradiction in that, but I agree with it. I mean, I agree on the general term. But, of course, one of the things that the Iranians have this sort of slight paradox is that because of the limits of their power, and there's a, you know, it's quite handy to have American bases quite nearby. You, do you see what I mean? I mean, because then you can attack them. I mean, if the Americans all withdrew and all the Americans all went, um, they, they'd be in a bit of a pickle. So I think the grand strategic picture is, as you've described it, that's their sort of vision thing. You know, let's get them out. And I think the Russians are playing that game very well. I, I'm not sure about the Chinese. and I don't know enough about the Chinese. But I mean, the point is the Chinese also want to have they're much more dependent, I think, as uh, Helen will confirm on oil coming out of, you know, hydrocarbons coming out of the Persian Gulf. So, you know, they would need to defend those interests. And I'm not sure whether they're prepared to get involved in quite that level. Well, they also but, want the Americans bogged down in the Middle East. Exactly. I mean, in, in some ways, you know, it suits them. Not to, I mean, this is this is part of the conundrum, I think, in some ways, you face that what, what you don't want, you don't want the Americans out. You want the Americans bogged down, basically. And and unfortunately, I think it's a mirror image in some ways. Some might argue what's going on in Ukraine, you know, um, in some cases, if you're being very cynical about it. But there's a, a, a view that if you get, you know, the Americans out, you lose some sort of deterrence effect with them because you don't have access to them. But then also, you know, you have to take responsibility for certain things that maybe you don't want to at the moment. I think the danger in some ways of that strategy, of course, is that one of the reasons they are quite as successful in some ways as they are at the moment is because actually the, the, the real problem is the West doesn't have a strategy and, and, and the West isn't thinking through what it wants to do. It's, it's constantly dealing with symptoms and it's not dealing with, with the core. I mean, I would say on this, that part of the issue, there's actually a lot of weaknesses in the Russia-China Iran alignment. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, and, and, and part of it is that you've got competition between Russia and Iran, that Russia wins overwhelmingly when it comes to energy exports, not least because of the fact that the sanctions, the financial sanctions on Iran make Iran's energy sector, not least its gas sector, which is particularly important to it, a complete mess. And they've been pretty unsuccessful in getting either the Russians, actually, or the Chinese to invest in it and the sanctions are clearly part of the reason why that, that why that is the case despite the fact of the agreements that have been put in place but at the same time is Iran's geographical position and the relationship of that to the Iranian backed groups particularly obviously the Houthis at the moment means that Iran can do a great deal of disruption around the the waterways of the Middle East from the Persian Gulf um through the Red Sea and so we can see if we if we think about which I think we've been trying to do in this podcast about what the Houthis are doing at the moment. It isn't just a question of their response to the 7th of October. The Houthis were taking action on the western side of the Persian Gulf, causing a big crisis in 2019. But this is an ongoing story. So that Iran is both economically weak, it's not as strong in relation to its two supposed partners as it seems, and yet it can still cause a great deal of disruption to western states. And that is, I would say, partly what the United States and European states haven't really found a way of, of getting to grips with. Now, often Iran does that from a position of weakness. So if you go back to 2019, when the Houthis were attacking that major Saudi oil facility on the western side of the Persian Gulf, that's really in response to Trump administration putting all that, I think, do they call it maximum economic pressure or something yeah, like that? Ma yeah, maximum pressure. So when Iran's weak, it lashes out. And you can maybe see that in terms of what's happened in, even in Gaza, in which the prospect of Saudi-Israel normalisation was, and, and the Middle East-India um, economic corridor that we've talked about before was weakening Iran's position. So mm. Iran allows, shall we just say, uh, Hamas to, to act in the way in which it does. Nonetheless, 
when Iran lashes out from weakness, it causes a whole set of problems that the United States and Europe does, doesn't seem able to cope with. I mean, it is the great disruptor. I mean, that's true. And I think to some extent, I mean, there are two two caveats, I think I, I'd put to that. And I, I broadly agree with that. One is that it doesn't necessarily take into account, obviously, in some ways, the domestic repercussions for Iran. So, I mean, you see that in the current conflict with Israel, Gaza, whatever. So, you know, the official Iranian position is, you know, war, war to the end, basically. You know, let's, let's go for it. I mean, as I said to someone, I said, you know, a regime that has spent the last 40 years saying, you know, we want to eliminate Israel or we want to get rid of Israel. I mean, this is a godsend. I mean, like, on the other hand, if you actually look at what they're doing, they've been a little bit ambivalent about. They've sort of like... Yes, they've chanted very heavily from the sidelines. They've supplied the Houthis. They've encouraged Hamas. At the same time, they're sort of like, well, you know, so far, but not too far. I think part of that actually reflects the fact that domestically, they're not in a good situation. Okay, domestically, they're in a very bad, weak situation, economically, ecologically, politically, whatever you want to say. They're not in a good situation. They haven't been able to get public support out for their cause in the way that they would have normally done, say, 10 years ago, even. Right. They can't do that now. Um, nobody's interested in Iran. I mean, they're more interested in their own problems. The other side of it, which I think is something that, you know, in a sense, we're trying to sort of energise, is the sort of sheer inertia that exists in Western policymaking at the moment. Yeah? I mean, this sort of like... It's just such an effort. I mean, what I used to describe it, I said to someone, I said, masterly inactivity, which is sort of a hallmark of British foreign policy, sort of works in the 19th century because you're at the top of the pyramid, so you can sit back and gaze very sagely at everyone. Masterly inactivity at this time doesn't really work because basically what you're doing is you're seeding the ground. And I think they did that during the nuclear negotiations, by the way. We didn't talk about I, I think Kerry did that in the nuclear negotiations. He played a very strong hand badly. The Iranians played a very weak hand well. Okay. But also you see this now. You see it now in the terms of the way in which we're so worried about escalation that we're frightened of our own shadow. And there are sound reasons, obviously, for being one that one needs to be careful. But... If you look at the war in Ukraine, for instance, we're really asking the Ukrainians to fight a war with one hand tied behind their back. I mean, it, it, it's because they're so worried about what Putin might do next. If you look at the Middle East, we have this image of Iran, which is vastly inflated, vastly inflated in terms of its power and authority and reach. But it's repeated by a number of commentators and pundits. And you can bet your bottom dollar that all these articles that are produced in the West saying, you know, that Iran is about to seize hegemony in the Middle East, they're all being translated very vigorously in Iraq, you know, and being passed around and said, look, even the West says we're brilliant, you know. <laughs> I mean, and when they do that, of course, it just reinforces this self-belief that they are doing something right. It, so in a way, the, the Iranians are, are lashing out all over the Middle East in an attempt to get some kind of leverage that they could then use to negotiate with the West, perhaps over, you know, nuclear deals and, and all the rest, re- re- reductions in the sanctions. But there is a, a clear logic from, a say, a, a, an American Republican perspective to go back to a John Bolton, squeeze them maximally as hard as you can um, and, you know, brace for the Iranians lashing out because they are so weak. And if you're going to have another go at the nuclear negotiations, do it much more strongly and from a position of much more strength and realize your own strength. Don't do what uh, don't do what Kerry did. Yeah. And I, I mean, the thing is with that, you know, what our problem and what my problem with the American position has always been is it is always one extreme or the other. And I, I don't understand why they can't find a good middle way. So there are ways of restoring deterrence that don't rely on you having to use either maximum force, maximum pressure, whatever. You can do it in different ways. The trouble is, is that you've got, you know, so the basic model really for the Americans and others is if you set a red line, stick to it. You know, it's very basic. Know who your allies are in the Middle East. Stick with them. I mean, you know, at the moment we, we you know, we, we, we are being a little bit too indulgent. We're not in a position at the moment to be so indulgent about how we carry on with our foreign policy. We obviously have the shadow of Iraq. We have the shadow of Afghanistan. I mean, let's be honest, the withdrawal from Afghanistan was a fiasco. I mean, it was a fiasco. What message did it send? I remember saying, when when did when did they withdraw? 2021? It was 2021, wasn't it? Summer of 2021. They were still thinking that the nuclear agreement could be restored. And I remember saying to American colleagues then, I said, you have singularly, brilliantly, completely shattered the chance of a nuclear agreement being re-signed. And they went, well, I said, because the Iranians are sitting in Tehran and they're looking at this withdrawal and they're laughing at you. But Ali, I'd say, I mean, I agree with some of that, but if you take the Houthis, and I think that this is where we've got to, 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 to push a bit harder, is a red line was effectively issued to the Houthis the week before last, I think. And then we've seen these airstrikes by the US and the United Kingdom 
since. And it's, it's not like they haven't hit their targets, obviously, but they haven't actually stopped the disruption to shipping in the Red Sea. Indeed, there's more disruption to shipping than there was before the strikes and insurance costs have gone up. There is a great deal of difficulty in basically having to take on a group like the Houthis that control effectively half of Yemen now, that can use very cheaply assembled drones that are very hard to um, to, to basically stop them um, doing that. And that seems to me why Iran partly has the position in which it does, because there's a certain asymmetry in the situation of the warfare that is created by these groups. And I think the Houthis are the most important because, as I say, I think that they have essentially been, if you take the pandemic year part out of it, they've been disrupting the seas, which China and Europe in particular depend upon in order for the world economy to work like for them. And that's why I think that it can be the case that the Americans are taking Iranian power in terms of a general conflict over estimating the risk perhaps and at the same time actually struggling to have a strategy to deal with what the Iranians have have created and that's why that these proxy groups if that's the way to think about it, I, mean, I, I think the Houthis are partially independent actors as well I don't think you can just simply reduce them to Iran. Second cousins I Yeah <laughs> that's in way where Iran's influence has come from is actually not what's gone on with Iranian power itself which is weakened mm. in any number of ways that we've been talking about but by the Houthis and, and Hamas. But you see, what, what, what I would respond to that is that if you leave things for long enough and you ignore them and you let them fester, then it takes a lot longer to correct it. I mean, you know, this idea that a single strike or a couple of strikes was going to sort it out is not, not now. To the Saudis, they said they'd obviously been fighting Houthis for some time, obviously in a very brutal fashion. But of course, what happened was is they were severely criticised for it. And I mean... The, the thing is with the Houthis, which I find quite striking, is also that one of the areas which we're fatally weak on in the West, actually, is managing the narrative and controlling the narrative. We used to be quite good at it, actually. But now the Houthis, there are people chanting in the streets of London in favour of the Houthis, who, who are a blatantly anti-Semitic group. Not just death to Israel, curses on the Jews. I mean, it, it's on the flag. So, I mean, the thing is that but because they've said they're doing it because of Gaza and so on and so forth, they get a lot of support on Western streets. Now, my, my point is here is that I entirely agree with you. I think that this is not going to be solved overnight. It is a much more difficult problem, but it's a much more difficult problem because we've neglected it. I mean, this has been going on, I wouldn't even say since 2013, you know, since the red line on in Syria. I think really it's part of this sort of assumption that there's Western fatigue, there's Western disinterest. I mean, this is what led... Putin into Ukraine. He didn't think the West would actually stand up to it. They've sort of miscalculated, obviously, on this front. But there is also an argument that the West is suffering from major fatigue, doesn't want to get involved, and they're just going to sit it out. And this is the issue, which is really, I think, something in the West that we need to, you know, politicians need to be honest with people in the West of what this involves. And we haven't really been, we're sort of fighting a phony war at the moment. What we need to do is to be very clear about what the challenges are ahead. And I think, as Tom was saying, that sort of idea of real politique, we need to be clear about what the ideas and what they're challenging. And, you know, not, uh, as I say, you know, what not deal in a sense with simply the symptoms. Periodically, there needs to be a much, much more coherent, longer term strategy, because I, I agree with you. I mean, this is I, in some ways the situation will become worse before it gets better. And, but that's only if there's actually a, a, a proper policy in place. Before we um, bring this podcast to a close, because I think we're running out of time now, I, I did want to ask you specifically on this thing that's happened mm. in Pakistan with Bal- the Baluchistan mm. and the, this back mm. and forth. Because I think for a lot of us, yeah. it just comes out of the blue. Like we didn't we didn't see bizarre. this at all. Yeah. Um, so could you just give us a sort of idea? Is the way to understand this again this this like, this notion of Iranian weakness? Um, that they're, they're lashing out. I mean, I, 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 and I think, and I've written about this actually. I mean, I, the, the way I read it is, is someone, someone in the hierarchy said something must be done, and so something was done. <laughs> but because, after the Kerman terrorist attack, which basically ISIS Khorasan claimed that are sort of working out of Afghanistan, they decided to attack another Sunni, you know, radical separatist movement that has its base in Pakistani Balochistan. Now, this goes in tandem with the attack on the Kurdish, where they said this was a Mossad HQ. If you, if you listen to the, to the Iranians, the cheerleaders on social media and others, they say this was really about restoring the balance of deterrence and this sort of thing. I don't see it, actually. I see it basically as someone in the hierarchy saying, we've got to do something. We've got to show that we can do something. And therefore, they did it. And I think it's a salutary reminder that, you know, Iran is not quite as coherent an actor as people think it is, because it... 
even in Iran, you can read criticism saying, what the hell have we done this for? In a sense, they would have been happy if, if the attack on Baluchistan had been coordinated with the Pakistanis, in a sense. And, you know, it had been an attack on this terrorism. Instead, the Pakistanis retaliate. And in the process, you know, a number of families are killed. So why, why is the Iranian regime and, and, and ISIS so sort of uh, sworn enemies? Of well, again, one of the great paradoxes, I mean, it goes back to the Russia-Iran relationship as well. I mean, it's also so on the one hand, you know, and I said to someone, you know, the, the Byzantine nature of politics in the Middle East is such that Iran is supporting Hamas, you know, radical Islamist Sunni movement in, against Palestine, in, in Palestine but is at the same time the target of a radical Islamic uh, Sunni group uh, coming from the East, because basically ISIS, Khorasan, or ISIS in general, are very anti-Shia. I mean, they see the Iranian Shia and the Shias as basically heretics. And like all sort of religious um, schisms, um, you know, you have a much bigger hatred, in a sense, for your religious, co-religionists who happen to belong to a different sect than, than you do for, for others. I mean, basically for ISIS, you know, Shias are beneath the Jews. I mean, they, they, you know, you can accept Jews and Christians. You certainly can't accept Shias because they are straightforward heretics. It was wonderful to have you on. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. Thank you all for listening at home. If you liked it, please subscribe and give us a rating and we'll see you all next week.